Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Chef Bryce Gilmore. He's the chef owner of Barley Swine, Odd Duck, and Sour Duck, which are all located in Austin, Texas. I actually had the pleasure of going to Barley Swine firsthand a little over a year ago. It was March 2022 when we were making our way through Texas. We went to I think five different cities, uh, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, and Corpus Christi. And Barley Swine was like the first restaurant that we visited on our trip. And it was one of our favorites. Didn't really have any expectations kind of going in, kind of going through the Austin food scene and where we wanted to eat. And we had to kind of rule out any sushi restaurants just because my wife was pregnant at the time. And it was between Barley Swine and Odd Duck kind of going back and forth and just chose Barley Swine, just basing it off like Instagram photos. Didn't really know too, too much about it and had a fantastic time. You know, it's a tasty menu. Uh, we sat at the counter, got to watch the kitchen work, which is always fun. Really enjoy counter restaurants. I know some chefs uh, we've had on the podcast are kind of like, eh, I don't really joy uh, being on the other side of the counter, but some do. And, you know, we love it just because you kind of get something else to focus on if you ironically don't want to have a conversation with somebody that you're with or, you know, just want to be able to fill the gaps in the conversation or whatever. But the cool thing that I really like about the counter restaurants, and I kind of talked about this with Mark Zimmerman too, is you get to see everything and you get to watch all the communication between everybody that's working in the kitchen. So in Mark Zimmerman's case, there was a lot of nonverbal communication that I picked up on. With Bryce here, and I tell him kind of to start the interview too, you know, one thing that I noticed, you know, once we kind of figured out who he was and everything in the kitchen was how he moved around the kitchen. There was no wasted movement, no wasted energy. Everything was methodical. You know, I compared it to essentially, you know, a shark, how they never stop swimming, but everything is kind of purposeful. There's no flailing about, there's no running over here, running over there. And that was the cool thing to watch. And just to be able to watch him through over the course of our dinner, you know, shift to this station, go back to the dessert station, come up front and help, you know, on the cold app station, you know, when they're falling behind, they're getting slammed with like 12 different apps that uh, the chef there had to make, you know, and she's the only one on that station and that kind of progresses through the tasting menu. So that's always the cool thing for us to watch. Probably makes no sense to a lot of people. Um, some people listen to this, probably it does, but It'd be similar, you know, to compare it to watching a professional basketball player, like watching LeBron James, right? But instead of the camera following the ball, the camera only follows LeBron through the whole game. So you watch him move without the ball, kind of where his eyes go, like that whole thing. It's kind of this next level, like nerd thing. So that's the cool part that, you know, we love about counter restaurants and everything. And we had a fantastic time. The food was awesome, uh, super unique. They get all their stuff from, you know, local farms. You know, we kind of get into all that in the interview and what he's working on next, which is opening his own farm too as well, which is a cool concept that he's kind of working the first time, going to be doing the first plantings and everything this year. It's called Riverfield Farm. And you can follow it on Instagram at Riverfield Farm. It's river.field.farm. You can also follow him and the restaurants on Instagram at Bryce underscore Gilmore. At Odd Duck Austin is for the Odd Duck restaurant. And then at Barley Swine and at Sour Duck Market. All one word there. That's all the accounts that they have on social media for all the businesses and restaurants and everything. You can follow us on Instagram too, at Spoon Mob. We're on all the other social medias, Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff. It's either Spoon Mob or Spoon Mob 1. You can follow us there, but primarily we use the Instagram to do most of our stuff, posting new photos, links to the podcast, uh, updates on you know podcast episodes, all that stuff. Check out our website, spoonmob.com. We got chef profiles up there. We keep it up to date with any new information that comes out since I've been on the podcast. We have food photos from all of our stops at all the different restaurants and stuff that we've featured on the podcast too as well. 
even the wine bars and stuff like that. We post photos too. We have links to all the episodes up there. There's a master page for the podcast. There's also, you can go into the individual chef sommelier insider profiles, and we have links to all their episodes too as well. So if you're looking for a specific one, feel free to write in questions, comments, feedback through either the contact portal on the website or directly to us, spoonwabayahoo.com. Thank you for people that have been writing in. We try and integrate those questions into the best episode that we kind of feel it fits with after we do the initial research. That way it kind of comes in at the end of the podcast. So it's a cool little thing that we do and we kind of link it all together and everything, you know, even with the chefs leaving behind questions and whatnot too. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. We're on all the platforms. You can find us, just search Spoon Mob or use our Instagram bio link. That'll take you through a link tree. It'll get you to all the platforms. Uh, we also post links uh, whenever there's a new episode out too as well. So, you know, you can follow that and find the best app or that your preferred app. Um, we're on everything. And then everything hits YouTube a week later after releases on the podcast apps too. So you can subscribe to our YouTube channel if that's your preferred method to use and listen to podcasts or watch podcasts whatever. or whatever. But Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Chef Bryce Gilmore, the executive chef owner of Barley Swine, Odd Duck, and Sour Duck Market in Thanks again for coming on the podcast. I know you're a busy guy. You got three different restaurants there in Austin. We've had the pleasure, I think it's just under a year ago, we went to Barley Swine when we were doing a little trip through Texas there. Uh, we got the pleasure to eat there firsthand. Fantastic experience, awesome kind of vibe. Well, you got all the jars with everything kind of fermented and everything on the counter and you can see right into the kitchen and everything. You were there too as well, uh, just in the kitchen. And the cool thing that I remember too was watching everybody just, you know, do their stations and everything. And you're kind of just in the middle. You're just off to the side of the pass, essentially, um, the expo and Pretty much like expressionless, like in a good way though, but like you just kind of were watching everything. And if this person needed help on their station, you just kind of went over and helped them. And then you went back to, you know, where you're standing and then, you know, somebody else would do something and, and you'd walk over. Or then the CDC there, Kevin, if he went somewhere else, you kind of just, you know, covered what was going on and moved back. Like you were just kind of like a, a shark, like everything that you did had purpose, like every movement that there was no like wasted movements, if that makes sense. And it was just nobody else probably picked up on it. It's probably just a nerd thing on my end. But I just thought it was really cool just to watch you just kind of watch the whole thing and service just kind of go and and just made all these little subtle moves it had to be wherever you needed support and stuff like that. So but I want to get to, you know, barley swine and odd duck and, and sour duck and everything, you know, and the ethos of all that stuff. But I always like to start at the beginning with everybody. How did you kind of first get involved with cooking and everything? Because you're from Austin originally, right? And your dad had restaurants. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, I don't do too many podcasts, so I appreciate talking to you. And I never thought of someone observing me talking about it in so much detail. It's, it's funny because I've uh, normally I would I would be the one expediting when I was there, but uh, I'm trying to retire from that. Just kind of wander around the kitchen. I grew up in kitchens. My, my father's a chef. He's been doing it since he was 15. And I started working in restaurants when I was 14. And kind of all I've ever ever known and done. And starting at a young age certainly uh, was beneficial for my uh, kind of beginning of my career. It's been a fun ride so far. So you first got started bussing tables, right? At your dad's restaurant at the time. I think it was called Zetejas. Yeah, Zetejas. Uh, they... Had a couple of restaurants in Austin. We're expanding kind of around the country at the time, which is kind of neat because I, I spent the year after high school 
traveling with him to open other restaurants. So I got that experience. And this was before I went to culinary school. But yeah, I started out busting tables. I did that for a couple of years and started running food and expediting and kind of worked my way into the kitchen. And as soon as that happened, I was pretty set on this business. And when I was just busting tables, I, I was kind of like, I don't like restaurants. I don't want to do this. But I was 14, so who knows? Did you always want to be in kind of the back of the house, in the kitchen? The one eye was always wandering over there kind of thing? As soon as I started working uh, in the kitchen, I was, I was pretty hooked on it. I liked the energy. I liked the camaraderie. I liked the teamwork. The idea of creating something with your hands. and you know, It's, it's a kind of instant gratification where you make it, somebody eats it, kind of tell if they're going to like it or not. Which, that's kind of partly why I like the open kitchen concepts. You can kind of watch the guests as they're dining. And when you know your guests are having a good time, it really makes it all worth it. Always loved the kitchen atmosphere since I first started doing it. So after high school, you wind up going out to California and you go to the California Culinary Academy. So what led to you going out there instead of going to the CIA in, in New York? Why'd you go to California? Why'd you go West? CIA was on my list. I think at the time it was, there were really only a handful of really good culinary schools. It was CIA, the California Culinary Academy, and then I think the New England Culinary Institute were the top three that I, that I was aware of, that I was looking at. You know, I was born and raised in Austin. Um, so I've only lived here or other towns around Austin. When we went and visited San Francisco, went to the campus, which is downtown. It was downtown, right in the heart of, of the Tenderloin. Walking around, I was like, this is really different and new and interesting. And there were really good restaurants in the city that I knew that I would be able to work in while going to school. That was kind of part of it. I wanted to be able to have a job while going to school. And I know that like the other other culinary schools, New England and, and CIA, you know, CIA is not in New York City. Had it been, it would have been a different story. And I wanted to be able to go to school, walk to school from my apartment, go to work, walk to work from my apartment. And there's great restaurants there. I love the, I just love San Francisco, honestly, after visiting it. That really pretty easy decision. And it was very eye-opening. Where'd you work when you were in school? There's this place called... Uh, Enrico's, I walked into a couple kitchens kind of way out of my league. They were the only place that like allowed me in and let me stage and hang out and hired me. I didn't know any better. You know, I didn't know, you know, I don't think Michelin was around back then in America, but you know, these were like Michelin star restaurants that I was walking into while going to corner school, you know, and they wouldn't even give me the time of day. So, but this place did like uh, kind of Mediterranean, Italian, Spanish cuisine. They had a little wood fire pizza oven, wood fire grill. Uh, so that was my first experience with those things. And, uh, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a decent restaurant. I would say, like, for San Francisco at the time, it was average. But, like, compared to, like, restaurants we have here in Austin at, in 2003, you know, it was pretty, pretty good. So, like, we were, you know, foie gras and you know, stuff like that, too, which is neat. So. But, uh, yeah, I, so I worked there during school. Spent, like, a year and a half or so there in San Francisco and ended up coming back to Austin for a little bit. I also worked at this place called Cortez, which is also another kind of Spanish Mediterranean restaurant, which I learned a lot. I learned a lot there. I think uh, those flavors, those techniques, and, and uh, those Italian, Spanish, French cuisines are very influential for me in the, the stuff that I like to come up with. Uh, so I combine that with like Tex-Mex Southwestern food that I grew up with. Was that like your first exposure to some of those like cuisines. Austin, the food seems way different now, obviously, in the last five years than what it was back in the early 2000s. But 
I can't imagine there was much more than maybe an Italian place or two around the city at that time. Yeah, but you know, but with my my dad's restaurants and just what I grew up with was you know even the enchiladas and fried chicken fried steak. You know, that was some barbecue things like that. So yeah, to see like a real Spanish, Italian, French restaurant cook that food was was very eye opening. I'm glad that I went out there because it exposed me to. Uh, much more than if I were to stay in Austin, Texas, you know. But after that, I came back home uh, to Austin, worked at a couple places, spent some time at a place called Cafe 909, which was in Marble Falls, like an hour west of Austin when I was in my early 20s. And uh, spent about two years there, a very small restaurant. But at the time, we were considered one of the top top five restaurants in Austin, even though we were an hour away. This would have been like 2005, six something like that. Small restaurant, was like three three of us on the line. I ended up being a sous chef the last year I was there. Chef really taught me a lot there. Uh, Mark Schmidt, great knowledge to share. So I, I definitely took a lot of weight from that. While I was there, I was with my wife and she had, we weren't married at the time yet, but uh, she got accepted to med school in Lubbock, Texas at Texas Tech, which if you don't know, is kind of in the middle of nowhere. There's not much good restaurants out there. She was going to do that. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to I'm going to go back to San Francisco. I'm going to try to travel a little bit, keep working on my career while you're doing med school stuff. So I went back to San Francisco to work at Boulevard, which was great. And I think just being in California and having the experience that I had up to that point, again, I started to really pay more attention to the whole farm to table thing. There's a farmer's market on Embarcadero right next to Boulevard. So you can kind of stop by there on the way to work um, on the weekends. And everything we got at that restaurant was from some farm around there and we would change our menu frequently there you know that was a real awesome experience and i really started to find that passion and love for the farm table movement and so i spent a year there and after that was trying to figure out what to do so i ended up finding the chef in uh, aspen that uh, you know i'd always kind of had my eye on aspen so i mean there was like some good restaurants and the hotels there the chef ryan hardy had he was a partner in a in a farm and was doing very authentic Italian cuisine, a lot of whole animal butchery, charcuterie, processing of, of the vegetables from the farm and you know, everything the farm produced, they'd bring in the restaurants would have to figure out how to use them. So I wanted to, that was kind of like, those were things I wanted to learn. Just ended up moving to Aspen, spent a year there. So that was another good experience. I, I had never worked in a hotel before. So uh, that was at the little Nell hotel. So you get a little bit of the hotel experience which uh, i'm glad i got but i would never never do that again a little uh too much too weird like you know doing room service cooking you know staff meal for the 200 something employees of the hotel while you're trying to prep for normal service and it's like eh, this may might be not be something i want to do for a long time but i, I learned a lot there and then uh yeah after that i started to kind of just feel like kind of ready to do my own thing and I knew that Austin was, was very uh, kind of a embracing the farmer's markets more, I guess. I knew that every time I'd be in Austin, I'd go to the farmer's markets and notice like more and more people going. And the food truck scene was, was huge, like really, really ramping up at the time. And I just started thinking, like, what if I, what if I did a food truck where I buy everything from local farms and just create like a small chalkboard daily menu? And, uh, you know, I started talking about it with my buddies there and I told the chef what I was thinking and they, everyone thought I was crazy. You know, just, you're going to leave this, this good restaurant to go 
go start a food truck? Are you nuts? I'm like, well, this is, you know, this is a stepping stone to a restaurant. I can't afford a restaurant. I'm, I was 26 and I didn't have any, have any money, but I could get credit cards and I, you know, I maxed out my credit cards starting a food truck. But as soon as I had it in my head, and I, you know, I, I thought it was a good idea. I moved back to Austin and staying with my parents at the time. They had some property on North Shore, Lake Travis. My dad had a big garage with tools, all the tools I needed. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a food truck. So found a an old used catering trailer uh, in Wisconsin on eBay, and uh, for some reason thought like that was I was, in my head. I was like, that's it, that's the one I want. I thought since it had the infrastructure for catering, that it would you know be an easy like thing to just upgrade to what I needed it to do. And I didn't want one of those boxy white truck the trailers you know i wanted something that has some character to it there's a lot of airstreams all over the place that people had had done up this was different it had, a, had some cool characters to it me and my brother ended up driving up to wisconsin and uh we get there and i i see this thing and it's got painted on the side of it it says laura's wiener wagon and it's basically painted to look like a hot dog and i look inside of it and i'm like oh man this is, this is not what it looked like on ebay <laughs> but shit well i'm already here i might as well buy it we'll fix it up we'll make it nice did you get it for a little cheaper? Like, were you like, hey, this isn't what's posted on eBay? Like, I can't remember. It was only four or $5,000. So, like, in my mind, it was a good deal. You see see these people selling them for, like, $50,000 now. We drove it back. I spent the next two, three months basically, like, gutting it completely out. We, like, raised the ceiling because it was, like, right at our heads, you know? So, we, like, kind of raised the middle of it. And me and my brother did all the... Like, we did all the plumbing and electrical ourselves, built a little area in the back where we had a kind of like a screened in porch so we could have a wood grill. And that was our only like cooking source for the trailer. I really wanted the concept to be like farm to table, but we're, we're using a wood fire to, to cook everything. And so we got it all set up. I got it inspected. It was super easy time. Like regulations were barely anything. And since I didn't have propane, I didn't have to have it fire inspected, even though I was building a fire inside of the trailer and it was made out of wood. Just crazy. It felt like the Wild West or, you know, the time where we didn't have any regulations. So it's was, it was, now it's, it's much more strict, I think. That was nice to, to be able to, like, build my own restaurant with my own hands and have it actually be inspected by the city and be able to be uh, used and a valid business. Were there a lot of other food trucks around at that time or were you kind of on the front end of it? I feel like I was, I was kind of getting in when, uh, so like Franklin's basically had just been open. I think when I opened, they hadn't been around too long. I think Paul Key had, had opened an Eastside King trailer around the same time. A little, I think a little sooner before us. So it was like these very serious chefs, entrepreneurs starting food trucks kind of around the same time and, uh, taking the, the food kind of to the next level, you know, not just tacos and hot dogs and things, you know. So I, I would say I, we got it in right kind of right at the right time, right when the boom was happening. And, you know, it was a time in, in Austin where there were a lot of empty lots, and a lot of parking lots, central areas that uh, could be filled up with these trailer parks. Now all those empty lots and things are, are apartment buildings or high rises. So I think, you know, we got in and out at the right time. Uh, I mean, Odd Duck in this apartment complex next to us is, is where the trailer was. Um, this was all just a big empty lot. And now, once they once they bought the property and started developing it, I just kept bothering the landlords to let me take the restaurant space since it was right there, anyways. So yeah, I feel like we really a lot of a lot of I would say a lot of my success 
be attributed to timing of, of everything. You know, like we got in right at the right time with food trucks. Like everybody was was loving it and going to them and, and taking them seriously. You know, we could do whatever food we wanted to and people would come check it out. So it was a good, it was, it was a fun time. It's a lot of work, but I love challenges. And that was a challenge. And I feel like we, we did pretty good with it. What was the hardest part about running the food trailer? Besides the long hours, really just figuring out the business. Because I had never been in full control before, but I, I wanted it. You know, that's why I did the truck. I wanted that control. I wanted to figure out how to, how to make the business run and, and profitable and all that. And I had the basis down of how a restaurant works, you know, get all the percentages and the margins and stuff. So once you know that and you pay attention to how much money you're spending and what you're charging, all that stuff, it's, it's not, not too complicated. And my brother, you know, interesting enough, he, he had just graduated from Texas State when I was, when I was getting the trailer. So, and he, he got a finance degree. So this was 2009. There weren't a lot of people hiring for finance. 2009 so he didn't have much much going on luckily he he stuck around and helped me out and he's still one of my partners uh today in the restaurants and he does all all of our bookkeeping and payroll and everything uh which is very very nice so just you know learning how to manage the business you know hiring and firing people was definitely uh a lot to, to figure out and um you know paired with these hundred 100, 120 hour weeks that we were pulling because it was just me and my brother for the most part at the beginning. Yeah, it was a lot of stress figuring it out, making sure we could pay her. I mean, I remember at the beginning calling my my wife now, uh, who was in med school, like, hey, can I borrow like 300 bucks so I can make payroll? Because I had like one person I had to pay and I didn't, we weren't, it was like a slow week and I think it was like in the winter. So it was just a cold week. And, you know, that's something you also have to pay attention to the weather every day when you have a food truck. It's raining or cold, you might not be as busy. I just, yeah, so just making sure we could pay our employee, one or two employees we had as we started to grow. But uh, yeah, we would we did a lot of the prep and storage at, at my father's restaurant because he opened his own uh, Jack Allen's Kitchen at the same the same month that, that we opened. So he let us kind of use a small little section of the walk-in they had, store our stuff. And uh, I'd go in, like, either go in early in the morning when there wasn't a lot of people there to do prep, or we would go in, like, after service at the trailer go to the restaurant and like basically try to do prep in the back while, while the restaurant was closing down. And then, uh, then we go in the morning and do, do what we had to do. And then, uh, load all our coolers up with, uh, all the food we could fit in there and all, you know, everything we could prep in the time that we had and, uh, load it in the back of our trucks and drive to the trailer and start setting up. You know? So we kind of like ran, ran this restaurant out of our, our pickup trucks, people with coolers. And a lot of times we sell out of food at like seven o'clock at night just because we hold anymore and then you know which is great it's a good, good problem to have i guess you know but people would get mad and it's like I, I mean look at what we're cooking out of here like what do you want me to do i don't store i'm literally storing everything in the back of my pickup truck like of course it was on ice and it was cold and it was all healthy and, and safe you know there's only so much you can do out of a seven by 20 box so it was uh it was nice that we had the demand you know we'd open and there'd be a line of people and we just go 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 until we ran out of food basically so the busier we were, the shorter service was. You mentioned like you knew the concept for the food where you wanted, you know, this open kind of wood fire kind of thing in the back of the trailer. And then you wanted to be kind of farm to table. Were you going to the different farms and picking up the ingredients and the produce yourself? Or were they still bringing it to you? Or how did you navigate that aspect of when you're running the food truck? You know, at the time, so this was 2009, there weren't a lot of restaurants 
really fully committed to buying everything from local farms. So there weren't a lot of farmers that were, I think, used to working with chefs. I would mostly get everything for the week on Saturdays from the farmer's markets. The farmers were in town, so I would just go walk around, buy everything I could. I would get a, a half a pig every week from Richardson Farms and basically use that half pig throughout the whole week, buy like extra cuts of whatever I needed. I think we were getting like, I'd get like ducks and rabbits and goats and like then started using like goat hearts and random cuts that I could get that were cheap. And I remember, and so, sometimes, you know, depending on the season, there wasn't a whole lot to work with. There certainly just wasn't the, the networking, distributing thing we have going on now and like the access to, to as many farms as, as, as there is now. You know, I, just, I didn't know. I only knew who, who I could see at the farmer's market or like Boggy Creek or the, the couple urban farms we had at the time. And then like a slowly, I think as some farmers that maybe didn't go to the farmer's market started to figure out who I was, they'd talk to me and I could buy from them. But I remember uh, one farm, they brought carrots to the farmer's market. And it was the first time I'd seen carrots. And I was, uh, I was so excited. It was like a new vegetable I could work with. It just been like turnips and cabbage for a while. And uh, I was super excited. And I went, actually went and visited the farm and uh, I was like, Hey, can I come like, can I come here every Saturday and like stuff up from y'all? And they were working on like a wholesale program to start working with restaurants. Um, but they weren't at the time. And they, they were like, well, no, like, I'll pay regular retail prices. I just want to come and pick it up. No, we're not ready to do that yet. Okay. So I was like, I'm trying to make it easy for them. And I, you know, I wasn't about trying to get a, a, a deal or anything. And I just wanted to be able to go and like see it in the fields and maybe help harvest it and all that stuff. And they're just like, no, nah, we don't want to, we don't want to deal with that. And then, you know, six months later, they start doing wholesale and delivering to restaurants and stuff. So like, all right, whatever. It's mainly just going to the farmer's markets. We have a distributor here called Farm to Table in Austin that does a great job of buying local product and selling, selling directly to restaurants. And uh, they were just getting started too at the time. They would drop off a couple of things at the trailer throughout the week. But I would say it was mostly going to the farmer's market every Saturday and just trying to buy like week's worth of stuff. Eventually, the food truck kind of blows up in the sense that I think Andrew Zimmerman's TV show, Bizarre Foods, and then Anthony Bourdain, No Reservations, both feature it at, at some point on you know their individual episodes. Did you have any idea that they were coming through or anything like that? Did they reach out or was it just a surprise? Like, oh, there's they just showed up in five minutes before. They're like, hey, can we film? Like, you, are you okay with that? All those shows, they, they gave us they gave us a heads up. Uh, it was super cool to be a part of that, especially no reservations, you know, just to be able to experience uh, being on that show. And the one, the episode we did with the food truck, uh, Anthony Bourdain wasn't actually there. He just did a voiceover for it. He did come back and went to uh, Barley Swine maybe a year or two after that for another episode where he did get to hang out a little bit. So that was, that was pretty cool. And Andrew Zimmern was great. Really, really, really nice uh, talking with him and, when I started the food truck and when I was starting off as a, as a cook and a chef, I didn't really think about being on TV or doing podcasts or getting nominated for things. You know, it was just like, I just really enjoyed it. And I wanted, I wanted to have a restaurant and I wanted to cook for people. So like, it was kind of surreal when you start having these television shows that you would watch, I would watch those shows, you know, so to have them reach out and be like, no way, this is this really happening. So uh, yeah, they show up, you're like ner super nervous and like, do your best and uh, then you get to see it on TV a couple months later and it's like, wow, this is crazy. Again, I think just the timing of it, 
worked out. Austin was like becoming really a cool destination for people to travel to. So a lot of these shows were coming here and featuring different restaurants and stuff. It was cool to be a part of that. Uh, certainly helped uh, us gain recognition and helped our reputation. And there's also uh, Yelp was a big part of all that, which I absolutely hate. One of the things I learned uh, real quick was to not read your Yelp reviews. <laughs> But it, it got the word out. You know, people look at that stuff and we had good reviews enough to where people wanted to come. So, you know, Yelp in a way helped us, helped us too, even though like it was very frustrating sometimes. I remember arguing with a lady online because she was complaining about the $6 I was charging for half of a quail. I don't know what you're comparing this to, but like you're eating half of an animal, a whole half of an animal for $6. Like, are you kidding me? Like, think about that. Sure, you might be able to go to this other place and get get a whole quail for ten dollars. You know, I don't know, but you know, it's like I just remember getting so mad and like people could complain about my menu prices and I was running like a fifty percent food cost because the local food cost more. You know, it was costing me more money, and I was able. I mean, the whole concept I knew from the beginning was like, hey, my overhead's a lot cheaper than running a restaurant, so I could run a higher food cost to balance the more expensive product that I'm bringing. So. Like all the meats that I brought in were were more per pound than than what uh, you know a bigger restaurant would would buy, and I was fine with that because I could I could run a higher food cost. So even at a fifty percent or forty five percent food cost, which now a lot of restaurants are in twenty five percent, it was still too expensive. You know, there's uh, that's what I learned is like there's always going to be something for people to complain about, and my menu prices were like three to six dollars. Yeah, there were small portions, but it's like. You could get the whole menu for like 20 something bucks. <laughs> it's like, what are you complaining about? It's crazy. So, you know, those people are still out there. I think everything's too expensive and is what it is. That still is all going on today. That has not changed since, <laughs> since the food truck days by any means. You have the food truck. Did you always envision it being kind of a two, three, four year process where eventually you would have a, a brick and mortar for that? Like that was kind of the end goal. It worked out, but it took a little bit longer with them selling off the the land you know that you were kind of using they developed it and you wound up getting back in there and actually opening a physical space but yeah when i started the food truck the goal was to have a restaurant i didn't really set a timeline for myself i, I just kind of wanted to make that work make money doing that make it a profitable business and um, i knew that if i could do that that if i could build my reputation up like getting to a restaurant space would uh would be would be a, a possible. I didn't have money to to uh, start a restaurant. I didn't have I didn't know any people that could just give me a bunch of money. Like my parents gave me a small loan to help with the food truck. So I was just like focused on trying to pay that back. Yeah, I think it was like eight months into the running the trailer, I uh, came across a small like thousand square foot space down the street on Lamar, and I ended up looking at that and I saw a lot of potential in it. And so just talk, you know, figured out a lease with the landlord. And I did not bother hiring a lawyer for all that stuff. I just did it. And which I regret starting the restaurant. I learned a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. So it was like eight months. I think we signed the lease for barley swine. You know, it was a thousand square foot space. So it was small. And the way I envisioned it was kind of, I wanted to do this kind of gastropub concept because that was kind of a, a thing back then um, that I was seeing in, in like some bigger cities. So I think we I raised like 200 grand between some family members, some friends and stuff. And then the architect, the architect that did 
my father's restaurant. He designed the restaurant, I think, like basically for equity in the business. So I kept trying to kept, keep my, my uh, opening expenses down as much as possible. And yeah, it was uh, unfathomable to try to open a restaurant for less than a quarter of a million dollars nowadays, but we did it back then. And uh, that just brought on a whole other next level learning experience for me because now I was, I was a real restaurant. We had a, a beer and wine license and, you know, just a whole other uh, bunch of things to, to learn and, and be responsible for. And then we ran, we kept the, so at that point, once we got the restaurant going, we, what do we do? We signed it in August and then we were open in December, which now that I think about that, to be able to do the construction we did and turn it around in three to four months, is pretty crazy. It takes longer than that just to get a permit nowadays, let alone get the permit and do the actual build out and finish out and everything. Yeah. So then we, me and my brother, we had a decision to make of whether to keep the trailer going or not while we were starting the restaurant. At the time, we had a good amount of people working for us now at the trailer. So basically, um, most of them stayed at the trailer. And my brother took that whole thing on and he ran the trailer for the following year while I focused on the restaurant, hired the people I needed to hire for that. I was pretty hands-off at that point for the trailer and just focused on the restaurant. And uh, I think Dylan did a really good job of uh, taking what we had been doing over the last year and just kind of building off of that. And then a year, so that year, so two years after the trailer opened, uh, that lot got sold. So we had to basically the, the option of closing down completely, or we would have to move it somewhere else. We just decided to close it, just focused on the restaurant, and then you know, eventually more restaurants. It was sad to say goodbye to that, but you know, it, our time was better spent uh, focusing on the restaurants and building those up. When you started Barley Swine in its original location, did you view it as a completely different concept? Like, I mean, I know you mentioned Gastropub was kind of the original idea you had, but did you view it as an extension of Odd Duck, like almost bringing Odd Duck indoors? Or was it just a completely different thing that you didn't really see associating the two together? I wanted to keep the like farmer table seasonality part of the menu there. I wanted to do whole animal usage there but being able to so we, we bought another wood grill same brand and everything but a, a different one for the restaurant so we wanted to utilize wood fire in there as well but having uh you know ovens and a, and a stove and a fryer really opened up what we could do <laughs> creatively with the menu you know but uh i really enjoy trying to make the plates look nice you know you know with the food truck it was like everything's in a paper boat so it's less about the aesthetics of, of the food and more just about the proper cooking and flavor of it. So I don't know. I just, you know, we kind of came up with an opening menu with the guys that were a part of it, trying to have a good mix of fun things going on and stick with the, the, the winter season at the time. It just all evolved from there. We ran that concept. I wanted to do small plates. I think that was kind of the biggest thing of it. Just did small plates at the trailer to try to encourage people to get multiple things. I wanted to do small plates at the restaurant to encourage people to get multiple things. I didn't want to stick to the appetizer entree kind of format everyone else was doing. You know, people would try to compare us to like a tapas restaurant. We sub small plates, but obviously we weren't, we weren't the tapas restaurant. We weren't doing Spanish food. We weren't doing that style of, of small plates. It was just kind of like normal plates, whether it was an app or an entree, just done in a smaller portion. Our, our cut of steak was three ounces rather than... 16. I did two scallops instead of four or whatever, you know, it was just like everything was just smaller, you know, to try to encourage people to share and all of our seating was communal at the time. So it was a small space. It was the way to fit more 
people in. So you could be sitting at a table right next to people you didn't know, which I thought was fun. It really, it really added to the energy of the space. Felt like you were kind of sitting in a, in a pub and in Europe somewhere, you know, but enjoying, you know, a nicely plated uh, plate of food that, you know, we try to encourage people to have like three plates a person. You know? So you can come in and have a wide variety of things. And it's like, chances are you're going to like most of it. If you hate one of them, you're still doing okay. If you get, if you go into a restaurant and you just have one entree and you hate it, it's kind of a bummer, right? So kind of adds to your, your uh, percentage of success there, you know, you know, some because you're not, you're not going to please everybody with everything, but it was kind of neat. People could come in a group and get the whole menu. That was kind of the thing. You know, you come with a couple people, you order the whole menu, try everything we're doing that day. I really enjoyed that, that aspect of it. Uh, but uh, that's what we did at first. And we just, we ran that way for a couple of years, found small plates, communal seating, beer and wine only. As this property was being developed, that odd duck is sitting on um, now, you know, I just kind of had it in my head that I wanted I wanted to eventually do a larger restaurant, maybe try to take barley swine in a little bit more higher end direction, the ingredients and stuff, because we were doing foie gras and nice fish and nice proteins, and then maybe do a more casual, lower end, larger restaurant. So kind of in the development of all that, we're able to secure this, this space that we're sitting in now, just right down the street from where barley swine started. And in the process of getting that going i kind of thought well i might need to tweak what we're doing at barley swine because i don't you know we're right down the road you know the idea was kind of being thrown around of maybe going to a more of a set tasting menu format for some reason i just was like yeah let's let's do that let's try it so that yeah, was about three years into barley swine being open you know we were we were getting ready to open odd duck and uh we ended up going to a tasting menu only at barley swine so that Odd Duck could be a small plate, a la carte restaurant right down the street. So we did that for a little bit, about a year. I was spending a lot of time at Odd Duck. The Odd Duck got open. I was going through some legal issues with my landlord at Barley Swine. So I kind of came to the realization that my time at, at that location was, was not going to be for much longer. I think I was, so I was dealing with, yeah, I think my landlord sued me. He wasn't recognizing my lease renewal. So it was like a three-year lease with three-year option. And he was trying to say my three-year option was not valid because I didn't do it properly. There was tons of evidence for it. So he was trying to kick me out after three years being there. It's just like, who opens a, a restaurant wanting to be at their, their location for three years only? And I was also kind of legal battle with the restaurant in Florida that had just opened called Barley and Swine, which I sent a cease and desist letter to before they even opened. I'd heard about it. I hired a lawyer to help that because I had a barley swine was trademarked and all that stuff and everyone I'm talking to is like yeah you got to fight it because you don't fight it now and then anyone can use barley swine later you know um, I was like all right fifty thousand dollars later in legal fees like that restaurant ended up closing anyways so I spent tons of money fighting this trademark infringement case and then fighting my landlord trying to kick me out at the same time and it's just like man I learned a lot about the legal system and how Expensive it can be. Had I maybe had a better lease from the beginning, could have avoided some issues. But was he looking to just try and get you out of there so he could like re-rent it to somebody at a higher rate? We were already paying above market value, and he was trying to raise it by like fifty percent or something like that. It's crazy. Probably like he was trying to charge me back then, ten years ago, what what it should be charged now. And I was just like, no, like it was, it was absurd. Tiny restaurant, like it's thousand square feet. 
and he was a bad landlord. Like he had a lot of like, parking lot. He shared it with like a lot of other businesses. Like he owned the whole property. Just didn't take care of, of his business. So, anyways, I, I realized like I need to get out of there. So we, we started looking and uh, like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go bigger than and I'm gonna separate it from Odd Duck. Um, so I don't have to worry about competing with it. Um, if you want to do all the cart small plates from local farmers, you know. So we ended up moving kind of no- more north Austin to a restaurant that's a little bit smaller than Odd Duck. And uh, you know, I really kind of enjoyed the tasting menu format that we had started. But I want to I'm gonna build this restaurant. I'm gonna build out this kitchen to accommodate the option for the guests to do a tasting menu or have an all the cart menu. And so we did that at, at the the new bar this morning. So that was a whole other learning curve situation, trying to figure out how to run a, a kitchen, essentially two different menus, two different styles, two different formats. So that was interesting. thought we did a pretty good job of doing that. And we ran ran that with, so we opened in 2016, I think, beginning of 2016 up there. So we ran that way for um, about four years until the pandemic hit. And then everything changes after, after that. With Barley Swine and you have Odd Duck kind of at the same time, are you using the same farms for ingredients for both those restaurants or do you have that separated out you're very big with locally sourced local farms like everything's made in-house from scratch or you know sourced from a a farm like that's kind of it there's no bringing stuff in from california kind of deal so with that like did you keep the farms kind of separate or or was there a lot of overlap and you just kind of use consistent people that you know you had your relationships with we use uh same farms for the most part at all the restaurants. They have, have done so the whole time. You know, there might be some farms that we use more often, more regularly than, than others at, at different restaurants, but I don't try to like keep them separate or anything like that. It's like, I want to I wanna try to spread the love with the farmers as much as we can. And I'm not trying to, um, okay, we're only going to use this farm for, for this at this restaurant. And this it just depends on what the menu is at the time at each restaurant and what, what all, everyone has, you know. Like right now, Kevin, uh, the CDC at Barley is doing a good job of he'll, he'll go to Boggy Creek um, every week and buy a good good amount of the produce we use at Barley Swine there. Whereas I don't like I'm not doing that for doing that at the other restaurants. So if anything, Boggy Creek at Barley Swine would be the only like kind of singular relationship there. But otherwise, it's kind of like we'll use the same farm at all three restaurants a lot of times. When you guys are kind of tweaking your menus, because you guys get stuff all the time so you kind of like even barley swine you know before the pandemic then the tasting menu i think one of the things that was notable about it was it would change like every day something would change on there so is that based off of just whatever the farms are dropping off that day and you're kind of like oh well we're out of this now so we can't really substitute this ingredient but if we tweak it this way like and then that's just kind of how it winds up on the menu it's never ideal to have to change a whole dish on the fly with no heads up, but it happens all the time where a farmer just all of a sudden doesn't have thought they might have anymore or what they've been having. So you have to either change the thing completely or sub it with a different vegetable or something else that might offer similar flavor profile or texture or something that you think about, okay, why is this vegetable here? can't get it anymore so do we need to change the dish completely or can we sub in something else and it'll still be still be good but it's always we always try to like stay ahead and have an idea of what's going to go away and what's coming so we always try to like start thinking about the next season before it comes be ready for it but it happens all the time where 
know, we'll have something on the menu. We'll, we'll order it from one of the farms and then they'll tell us they don't have it anymore. So we'll have to make an adjustment. So I think being uh, flexible and learning how to adjust the menu regularly is very important for us. Keeps us on our toes, keeps us always thinking about new dishes and new flavor combinations or combinations or whatever. So it's, it can be, you know, stressful and frustrating sometimes, but it's also, I think it keeps us going and uh, it's just part of the deal, you know, it's, it'd be a whole lot easier if we just picked a menu to open the restaurant with and source everything from uh, Cisco that buys it from Mexico or California or whatever. And uh, you don't have to think about it anymore, but uh, there's the fun of that. So when you change over the menu, because I think barley swine, you guys change it at least four times a year, you know, with the seasons, maybe you guys change it more than that. When you're coming up with the new menu, where do you start? Do you start with a particular ingredient that you want to incorporate? Or do you start with the format where you're looking at, well, we know we're going to have some sort of protein here. We want to start with some sort of oyster or whatever. And you kind of build it that way. Like, what's your methodology there? We can't really think of it like we have four seasons here. We don't really change the menu four times a year. It's it's little things throughout the year that change. And to be honest, like down here, it's it's kind of like two major seasons is what we have. And then we have like little micro seasons throughout it. So you're looking at like kind of the spring, late, like kind of spring, summer time, like early summer, late spring. Uh, and then like fall, winter is another one, kind of like late, late summer, fall. And then you have like, certain ingredients throughout those that that come and go peak of the winter the peak of the summer are always like kind of the worst less available uh, everything's just too hot and dry or we get some kind of freeze or something freeze or rain rainstorm or something in the middle of winter that makes everything hard so we're, we're constantly just paying attention to that so we never want to change the whole menu at once so it's, it's generally like one or two dishes at a time that we will, will change but we have to be you have to do that while being mindful of the whole menu because a lot of times you want to like do something it's like well it doesn't make sense because this has to change later and we, we might need to use that for this or whatever so keeping the whole menu in mind is important while we're thinking of like one individual ingredient or one individual dish at odd duck we're all apart so you know we have i think 12 13 things on the menu for savory so i want to make sure that there's enough light beginning of the meal dishes that we're offering and enough and heavier dishes and it's not too much one way or the other making sure there's a good variety of textures and and just spreading like i said spreading the love on the ingredients you know like not having broccoli on three different things while we're not using carrots or something you know it's like hey let's try to use a little bit of everything spread it out try to feature things you know like i'm gonna put broccoli on a dish i want it to be there for a reason so Put it on all kinds of stuff. It's not like uh, choose your meats and three sides you want to go with it. You know, this is, you know, if we put carrots or beets or broccoli on a menu, it's there for a reason. Over the course of this time period, too, you get nominated, I think 2011, James Beard, Rising Star, Chef of the Year Award, Food and Wine, Best New Chef, GQ's Best New Restaurants list. I think also Bon Appetit, both your restaurants wind up being featured in their kind of list, too, as well. When you start getting all these kind of recognition, awards, accolades, like all the stuff kind of comes through, does that change anything for you guys aside from just more people probably coming in that maybe wouldn't have otherwise? I don't know. I think, um, you know, like I said before, I, I it's kind of surreal when you, you get these kind of nominations and reward, awards and things. I never thought about it 
when I got started. I never, I always wanted to be the best I can be, but I never thought like I would get nationally recognized for, for this. I remember when I got the call for Food and Wine Best of Chef, I was just like, so, it was so nuts to me. Cause I remember those magazines when I was younger, seeing those every year, being like, oh, cool. We kind of need to be on there, but it's not, it's never going to happen. It's 10, 10 people a year. Like, why would they ever pick me? And I think it was like the first year of barley swine. So it was like, they basically judged it off of the food truck. That was very crazy. And then the, the, the Beard Awards and all that stuff, I just, I held it with such high esteem. Like as a, as a young cook, you know, I, I, I knew what it was. I, I paid attention to who was winning Beard Awards and stuff. And uh, again, never thought that, that I would be considered for that. So, um, and then going to the awards, I think it was seven times in a row and losing changes your perspective too on things. I don't know. I think the changing for me, I mean, I think it's just like they were, they were learning experiences for me that, you know, I, everything that happened, you know, uh, usually it comes with like going to an event, being around other, you know, well-known, respectable people in the, in the industry. Um, so being a part of that was, you know, a good experience for me. But again, I don't, I don't, that's not why I do this, you know, so I, I don't think it didn't put any extra pressure on me. Of course, I would like to win every award I get nominated for because who wouldn't, you know, but uh, it is very satisfying just to be recognized as a chef. If you if you don't get enough satisfaction from your day to day business, you're in it for the wrong reasons. Um, every time I'd go to the Beard Awards and sit there and hear someone else's name called, I'm like, all right, back to work. You know, maybe I'll win it next year. But at the end of the day, like, what matters is hundreds of people that are coming to our restaurants every week to dine. I want to make sure that they're enjoying it. And I know they're enjoying it. I'm, I get to watch them. I get to see them. I get to hear them tell me directly that they like our food. And that's why we do what we do. So you get this high every time these things happen. And then you're, you're quickly reminded that of what really, really matters. You know, So I don't think it, it changed a whole lot for me at, at the end of the day, other than just gaining those experiences. From a business standpoint, we had Alex Seidel out of uh, Denver on this podcast, and he's the only one that's ever made me think of this when he mentioned it, because he was nominated like you for years and years and years and years, and then eventually finally won it. He said from a business standpoint, it was more valuable to be on the list every year versus actually winning the award, because there would be people that every time that list came out, they would go and hit all those restaurants that were in their city. You know, and maybe they were places that they never gone to before or whatever business would kind of jump up. And he was like, then once I won the award, like, then it's kind of like everybody forgot, like you lose kind of this customer base that they almost kind of forget that you exist. You know, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but I'm curious to hear kind of your take because he's the only person that's ever, you know, mentioned that to me. And I thought like, yeah, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. hundred percent. I, I remember, uh, Someone actually saying that to me. It's like, it's good you didn't win because that means you're still like, your name's still going to be out there every year. You know, it's like the more you're nominated, the better, right? I had heard that before too. Uh, regardless, I mean, all these things, whether you get number one, whatever, in your hometown newspaper or Beard Award or whatever, like, yeah, it's a bump of business, but it's short. It's not like necessarily a, a forever thing unless like you were really dead and nobody knew who you were. And then this like, opened you up to the whole world, you know, oh, this guy's here. Okay. But like, if you're already like established, these things are, are a nice little boost usually, not something that's going to like, if you weren't already busy before this award, you're probably not going to be like a whole lot busier moving forward, to be honest. People will come in because they saw you doing that, but it's not going to like last forever. Anytime you can 
remind people that you're there is a good thing. So to be on a in a publication or whatever on a somewhat regular basis is always going to be a good thing. So he's absolutely right that yeah, if once you win or once you're not on the list anymore, like it's just one less thing to remind people that you're there. Especially right now in certain cities, you know, I, I don't know how other cities are compared to Austin, but like we go through these times where there's just a restaurant opening every week. So everyone wants to check out the new restaurant, right? So no matter how good you are, sometimes like you get lost in the, the whole selection of dining options out there. What gave you the idea to open Sour Duck in 2018? Because it's a bakery, it's a beer garden, it's kind of this combo interesting concept that nobody else has really ever merged those two things together. I think there's been, you know, places that are a bakery in the morning and then some other businesses running at night as like a, a brew pub or something like that. But what kind of gave you that idea to start that concept? So I opened Odd Duck with uh, a couple partners, Jason in the front of the house and uh, Mark in the kitchen with me, who I had met in Aspen, Colorado, working on the line with him. Odd Duck at the time around uh, the opening of the new Barley Swine. So, um, those guys are not partners in Barley Swan, so that was kind of like my solo thing. So I, you know, I had enough going on. I felt pretty full and satisfied with what was going on in my life. But I know that like we were developing a good team at Odd Duck, especially in the kitchen. We were doing a lot of our own baking out of the hearth here. Mark had been doing his thing here, uh, and I think it was just I think I think people were just getting antsy, like there, there needed to be another project to work on. And we were kind of maxing out what we could do here as far as baking went. So we started talking and um, this concept of a, of a bakery started being thrown around. Um, it was something Mark was really into. I didn't have a lot of baking experience as a chef. Um, it wasn't something that I wanted to like pursue exclusively. You know, it was just all my baking experience was just like little bits here and there um, while working in different restaurants. But uh, I never worked in a bakery. I never worked a bakery shift. That was definitely Mark's thing that he was very passionate about and brought over to Odd Duck and, you know, had developed a, a great team. So we were just like, let's, let's start thinking about what we can do with that. So I reached out to, to our broker and uh, one of the first places she showed us was this, was like an old diner catering space and a big backyard, a couple of rundown houses in that, on that property. And I was like, man, this, this could be like a bakery that does wholesale and like we send like breads and stuff to odd duck and we can like we can do like quick food here and like have a cool kind of beer garden thing out here where this old house is we could put a whole separate bar building and all this stuff like we could all we could all kind of envision it right as we we're standing up there and that was all it took we were like yeah let's do it i think we spent a couple of years we opened in 2018 with that so we had to kind of gut that whole thing out move the two old houses and add a whole separate bar building and all that stuff and figure out how to run a, a bakery doing wholesale plus stuff out of the bake case and, and then figure out what the uh, food was going to be out of there. So luckily we had a, a hell of a team here at Odd Duck that a good chunk of them moved over there to get it open. That's always very important when trying to open multiple restaurants is developing uh, the team. You have the team in place at the maybe the, the original restaurant and you have a whole team that goes to the new one people that you can trust that you can rely on to help you uh, through that opening phase where you're trying to figure everything out. We knew we had that. It made, it made that decision a lot easier to open another restaurant. And you were able to use the, the Odd Duck trailer, right? You incorporated that into the property? 
they would just been sitting out on my parents' property, rotting away out there. So it's like, well, it's, that's the whole yard. Maybe we can like use it somewhere. So I had a guy like gut it out. Thought it'd be cool to have like a little stage area for, for stuff. We were able to kind of fix it up nice enough to be able to, it hadn't been moved in a while. It was never super sturdy to move around anyway. So we kind of made it a little more structurally sound and cut the side of it open and cleaned it up so we could just display it and have, mainly it's like a place where the kids hang out and then a stage for bands every now and then. So I'm glad we were able to use it. So that, that trailer was, was a big part of who, who, we, who we are and, and uh, it's nice to be able to use it again. With the the beer option and stuff, is is that all local breweries and stuff that you guys try and incorporate and feature? Do you guys do any brewing on site of your own? No, we don't brew anything. Um, we obviously, there's all tons of breweries here in Austin, so we feature a lot of them. We're not exclusively local, so we do buy beers from uh, other places, but um, we also feature a lot that are here. Same with spirits and things. Um, no, we just wanted to have a good a good selection of. Uh, beer on tap and all of our cocktails are on tap as well ease of functionality and consistency so we knew we we're going to do probably a high volume in this place and wanted to make sure that everything was uh streamlined for that for that purpose and you guys host a farmer's market there on wednesdays right or were before covid probably wiped out that idea <laughs> we did for for a little bit before covid and then that is one thing we've yet to bring back We've hosted a couple markets, like monthly markets there, not just for farmers, but other, other people selling things. That, that's been fun, but uh, we'll see. We've talked about maybe bringing the farmer's market back if it uh, really comes down to if, if any farmers want to want to drive in and sit there and sell their stuff during the week. So uh, we'll see. But it, that was, it, I was glad to be able to do that for, for the year or two that, that it was gone. One of the casualties of COVID for us was, was the farmer's market going away. That same time when you know the pandemic happens, you started publishing the Odd Duck Almanac, which is this cookbook, community magazine, farmer's almanac, like all kind of rolled into this one publication. So what gave you the idea to do that instead of like a traditional cookbook? You know, was that born out of the pandemic and just kind of looking for something to do and create? Or was that kind of already in the motion before the pandemic happened? It was before the pandemic we started it. Yeah, they approached us, uh, folks that did it, and they they had the idea. I really liked their style. I thought it was it was a cool concept. Been approached about doing cooks books before, but um, nothing ever really panned out. This seemed like one that we could really have our hand in managing, and it was just a smaller scale concept of a book kind of publication, and really unique to us. So uh, for a lot of reasons. Kind of made sense and timing was right, so we did it. we did one, and then just kind of like adjusted how we did it the next the next two, and I think like after three it was like okay, I think I was thinking it might be something we'd do like every year, but I think after three it was like the I feel like this is a good stopping point uh, for now at least. You know, we'll we'll see what happens later, but uh, um, it was a cool experience to create those and um, something that hopefully people will have have for a long time. And you know, just another like I said, like. This is a book that sits around their coffee table or library or whatever. And whenever they walk by it, they see it and think of us. That's kind of the point. I want people to enjoy it and think about us every time they look at it. Do you think you'll ever do a more traditional cookbook or does that format not make sense? I've thought about it. I've wanted to. Um, I think I would want to do it myself. I don't think I would want to go through one of the major uh, publishers. It's really just going to come down to timing and stuff and what's going on. Like I'm always one that wants to have 
some uh, other project going on. So I'm actually trying to start a farm right now. That's my, my project right now. So once that's kind of up and running, you know, we'll see if, if the book is, is the next one or not. Where are you at in that process with the farm? Getting the land. So we, we bought some property a little over a year ago, my wife and I. And, you know, I, I always had the idea of trying to have a farm for the restaurants that I could own, I guess. I'm not a farmer, so I wouldn't be doing all the work, but just to have, have a place that grew vegetables and fruit just, just for our restaurants. We bought this property. It's more of an investment thing and kind of like thinking that maybe someday we could do a farm on it. And uh, sure enough, like last summer, I think I was just going through like a month or two of like having a really hard time, like getting enough product for the restaurants or getting what we wanted from, from uh, some local farmers. And it's like, you know what? Maybe now is the time to do it. It's not getting easier to buy all your food local necessarily. A lot of, there's a lot, there's farmers coming and going. Sometimes it feels like more going than coming. It's not a, an industry that a lot of young people want to get into. So, and then you're, you're seeing some farmers are able to sell all their stuff in farmer's markets. They don't even need to work with restaurants. I, I don't know what the future of local foods is going to look like in this town or in, in the country, but I would like to help, you know, and, and, so I'm going to do what I can with this piece of property. I'm in the process of trying to get the land, and the soil amended. I had to, had to cut down some trees and clear clear an area. And uh, I bought a tractor, learned how to ride that thing, putting compost down, trying to get the, the land and soil ready and hoping, uh, hoping to do our first round of planting in March and see what happens. So I've been you know, working with uh, some farmer friends that we've worked with for a long time, trying to get advice and Kind of steering me in certain directions of what to do. And I need to hire a farm manager as soon as possible. But so we'll see how that goes. I didn't buy the property to, with the idea that I needed the farm on it. So this is kind of like a bonus if it works out. If it doesn't work out, then it is what it is. But uh, I feel like, uh, if anything, you know, the world could certainly use more, more farms. So I'm going to give it a shot, see what I can do. So if all kind of goes, you know, according to plan, with everything that you farm on this property that you're creating, is it going to be mostly main ingredients that you need for the restaurants? Or are you going to do kind of specialty things that you can't really get from other farms? You know, so that way you can push the creative boundaries at some of the restaurants. I think it's going to be an evolution of, uh, and we'll figure it out as we go, just like the restaurants have been over the last 10 years. It's hard to say. I'd, I'd like to say, yes, I'd love to do like specialty things that I can't get from other farmers, but it's also there's a reason why we don't see in some of the things down here is because they don't, they're not going to grow very well. So starting out, I'll probably do the things that are safer that I think I have a better chance of having success at. I think just kind of like you have your certain amount of experimental things that are new and different and see how they do. I think what I'm most excited about is being able to walk around the fields and seeing uh, the vegetables in the ground, seeing, try to do some fig trees. So seeing the trees and the figs and everything, it's like there's other parts of the plants that we don't use because we don't see it, but we can use. And I think like this is going to spark even more creativity for us and maybe open up some new things when it comes to even the ingredients that we're, we've been using. Maybe like maybe we'll use the greens or the flowers more or the stalks more or the leaves more than we've done before just because we haven't thought about it. Or when you see when you walk around the field and you're like tasting the flowers, you can use this part of this plant that normally, you know, you wouldn't see. So we'll see if that, that sparks anything for us. And, but uh, Or maybe we can be more picky. Like if I want okra at an exact size, I can control that a little more and go out there and I can, I can tell people, hey, pick this okra at this size. 
because most farmers aren't going to take the time to, to want to do that. They're just going to they can what they want to pick and then we buy it. Uh, which is fine. It makes sense. You know? So I don't know. There's just a little bit more control, I think, with our, with our place. And I think it'd be fun too for the line cooks to have a place that kind of the restaurants farm and they can come help on their days off and be a part of the whole process. I know a lot of them like to, they like to volunteer at different farms whenever it makes sense and, and see, uh, see where we get our things from and things to have, have our own places going to make it even more. I think on the barley swine website, there's like I counted, it's like 71 different partners, producers, farms that you guys use or different places that you source ingredients from all that stuff. It's all listed on the website, but there's like 71 different ones. So like you mentioned with farming, farmers are constantly coming and going. How does that kind of change? Like, how do you get to the point where it's not having to have 71 different places that you use? Not that that's a bad thing, because like you said, you get to kind of spread the love. But, you know, you look around a lot of farms, even here in Ohio, they're being sold because, you know, the person that was farming it, they either retire, their kids don't want it, their kids don't want anything to do with it. They wind up retiring, moving to Florida, Arizona, whatever. They sell the property. The property gets sold to some company that develops it in the four over one apartment complex or, you know, whatever. So, so how does that change? Like, how do you see farming becoming something that people are interested in again? Or is that even possible? If you, if you counted 71 producers on our website, I guarantee you a good chunk of those don't exist. Farming, farming needs to be a valid option for people to get into as a career field and money plays a big role in that and it starts with the consumer the farmer is going to make more money the consumer has to spend more money um, just like any business i want to keep making more and more money at the restaurant so i need more and more people to spend more and more money when they come here so i think that it's going to be important for the general consumer to demand small farm local produce and be willing to pay for and then you can have more and more small farms producing for this demand, and they're able to make a living doing it. Because all these small farms are basically like one or two people doing all the work. It's hard to hire for. I mean, you could argue about whether there's a labor shortage or not, but there is a labor shortage for certain industries. Well, no matter, it's, you can't pay $30 an hour for a farm work. Even you could offer people $20 an hour for farm work, and you're still going to have a hard time finding people. That's what we're doing. So it's already uh, an industry that's it's hard work. So you're, you have to want to do it, but you want to, you have to be able to support your family doing it as well. The demand has to be there. The people have to be willing to pay enough so that the farmer can charge enough and uh, we'll kind of see where it all shakes out. But it's one of those industries where like people get into it because they're passionate about it and they, they, they literally break their backs doing the work, trying to take care of their family. And the way we, we can help is like by like going to the farmer's markets, by seeking out these farms and buying their product and not trying to trying to get the best deal from them that you can. It's like, pay what they're asking and, and be happy about it. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Like I said, I don't know what the future holds for farming, but we've, we've seen a lot of farmers go and retire, sell their property over the years. A few new ones coming on. I feel like more are going than coming, but we'll see. We'll see what the future holds. There's there are still some young people getting into it. Um, I just hope it's enough. You know, we'll see. You know, you got the farm going, so that's kind of the next thing for you professionally to getting that set up. I'm assuming. Yeah, um, this all goes well. We'll start producing and then having some some product in the summertime, which would be like peppers and things, and just kind of like go from there. I'm only starting on an acre, so it's not a lot, but it's it's a decent amount, and 
this goes well and I can find enough people to help out, then we'll just keep expanding. And, you know, I think if I was going to do all the, the produce, and vegetables, but vegetables and fruit for the restaurants, I would need five to seven acres and be very efficient to really produce enough for what the restaurants are going through. So, so this will just be a certain, certain amount that, that will supply us. So we got a handful more questions for you. So this next question comes from previous guests on the podcast, Chef Vinny Semino of Cordelia up in Cleveland, Ohio. He left behind for you. What drives you, gives you the passion to do what you do? You know, what's your driving factor to not just be a chef, but a, a restaurant owner, a restaurateur and a farmer, essentially? I've always gotten so much joy out of eating restaurants. And I'm, just, I'm very passionate about restaurants and food in general. To be able to provide people with good experiences that hopefully will be memorable, things that they'll think about later in life is a good moment. That's what drives me. I like to make people happy. And knowing that it's and being, being proud of the, the effort and work that we put into it, creating something that's, that's unique just makes it that extra special. That's why I wake up and come to work every morning. It's just to, to know that um, we're able to, to provide uh, those happy moments for people. And, uh, and at the same time, while taking care of our staff, trying to help them realize that what they're doing is, is important and should be proud of it as well. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Can be anything. What's your biggest regret since becoming a chef? This next question comes from one of our listeners. Uh, they wrote in, will the influx of people relocating to Austin change the food scene? And will that be for better or for worse? I mean, it's already happening. Um, I think it's for the better. I think that people coming from other cities, bigger cities, cities that have different restaurants, they're coming here and demanding more uh, variety, things that will help this city evolve, I think, uh, for sure. And I, I've, I've noticed that since Big Boom started in the early 2000s to 2010, that's uh, already happening. Um, so I think that's going to continue for sure. So this last set of questions we ask to everybody who comes on the podcast, so a nice compare and contrast across the episodes. So kind of rapid fire style here, but who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far when you look back on it? Well, that, that would have to be my father. I wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for him. I learned a lot of my basic cooking knowledge from him. And um, I think the biggest thing I would take away from him is the value of, of respect and hard work, integrity, watching him gain the respect from his team in the restaurants when I was a kid, just through his hard work and dedication was huge for me. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? Spoon. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So scenario I usually give, person gets stuck at the airport, flight gets canceled, they reach out to you, your restaurants are closed, but uh, you kind of point them in this direction. I can say, I can go the easy route and say my dad's restaurants. Probably something, you know, from Kevin Fink. Like, he's got a good amount of restaurants down here that are a good variety of things going on. So, you know, Emmer and Rye, Hestia. I think those are nice, like, parallels to Odd Duck and Barley Swan. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So, a place you've never been to, you still want to visit. And then place you haven't eaten at, but you still want to dine at one day. Places I want to visit. Well, in America, I, I, have, I haven't been to uh, Portland yet or Tennessee, like Nashville. I like to go to those places. As far as places in the world, I would say um, Thailand and then uh, just Northern Europe. Uh, restaurants, I would like to go to uh, Blue Hill Stone Barns. I've been to Blue Hill in, in the city, but uh, love to see the, the farm and everything. Uh, Single Thread in California. Sean Brock's new, new places in, in Nashville. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? 
I'm going to say something and then I'm probably going to like remember something way later and it'll be way crazier. People doing uh, cocaine off the bathroom floor in the men's room. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, whatever that, you know, is, you know, not the healthiest for you, but you just can't help yourself. I love liquor. So whiskey, mezcal, gin. I have a full bar at my house. I make myself a couple cocktails every night when I get home. It's, it's a great relaxer, stress reliever. I don't dabble too much in candy, but uh, my wife brought home a couple of Thin Mint Girl Scout cookies that I've been snacking on. It goes really well with, with whiskey, by the way. What is one cookbook, whether it's a professional chef, home chef, that you think everybody should own? The French Laundry cookbook. I remember buying that when I was in culinary school. I mean, if you, if, especially if you're interested in like fine dining and French cuisine, that was a good one. Favorite dish thing you ever cooked, created, kind of looking back on your career, you can point to this as almost like your aha moment. Like you knew you could open your own restaurant, run your own restaurant one day. It would either be the, the pork belly sliders we did at the trailer. For some reason, people were crazy over. Or the shiitake stuffed pasta we're doing at, at Barley Swine right now. It's real fun. Kind of a play on soup dumplings meets ravioli i don't know just kind of fun texture i've done so many things i would say those two are like are the ones that maybe have gotten the most appreciation i'm an anthony bourdain fan uh, not everybody is or was you obviously had the pleasure of meeting him so outside of that though is there a moment episode scene uh, about him that stands out to you still or is was there any other culinary personalities that you kind of gravitated towards when you were coming up through your career i had the pleasure of sitting down and having a beer with him at uh used to be this old dive bar next to Barley called Bushy Lounge. It's not there anymore. Just me and him. It was like before they got open, we were able to go in there filming us talking and stuff. And just, just being able to kind of one-on-one chat with him was, it was a cool experience. Um, I, I love his. He's just so articulate and provides a, a unique like a, a perspective on, on life and eating out. Um, I think is uh, something you don't see from, from anybody else. But I remember reading Kitchen Confidential when I was a young cook and I was like, yeah, this is, this is the life that I'm, I'm getting into and that I'm living right now. And it's like, this is cool. I'm, I'm down with it. You know? He captured it. I don't know. I think he's, I would agree with you. He's, I'm a fan of his as well. And um, always enjoyed watching his shows and, and reading his books. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug everything. I don't participate too much in social media, so it'd be a waste of time. But, um, you know, Barley Swine, Odd Duck, Sour Duck Market, easy to find on, on Instagram. And uh, you can make reservations at, at Odd Duck and Barley Swine very easily on websites. And uh, following us on Instagram would be the best way to get any new info on us. Yeah, and you guys are open. Uh, I think it's Barley Swine, I think it's Wednesday through Sunday. I think Odd Duck is, is it every day? Every night at Odd Duck, uh, Sour Duck is Wednesday through Sunday all day. Barley Swine is Thursday through Sunday, just for dinner. But yeah, we had the pleasure of eating at Barley Swine. It was awesome, awesome experience, delicious food. So I haven't tried Odd Duck yet, but but looking forward to, you know, whenever we're back in Austin, uh, trying Odd Duck. One of the people we've had on the podcast, she actually lives here, Carrie Young, uh, actually worked at Odd Duck back in kind of the mid-teens when, when she was in Austin there. She's up here. I remember Carrie. She worked... Uh... She worked the grill with a broken arm, a couple shifts, and everyone was like, damn, she's, that's amazing. Yeah, it took her forever to, to get hired in your, in your restaurant there. Uh, she tried a couple times, and it just, you guys had a waiting list, apparently, out the, out the door. So Must have been back when hiring was a lot easier. <laughs> she was great. 
we had an awesome time. Uh, she's doing her thing up here, but, um, but yeah, looking forward to trying the barley swine, obviously new menu by now, but, um, you know, odd duck and everything too, whenever we get back there, keep in touch. Uh, don't hesitate to reach out if you need anything. We always try and support everybody as much as we can. Always an open invitation to return on the podcast, talking about a new concept, new menu, whatever, you know, 10, 15 minutes, whatever. That's always a standing thing for everybody, but, um, cool concepts, uh, delicious food and look forward to seeing you soon and trying more delicious food from you guys down there. Thanks for reaching out and having me on. Big thanks again to Bryce for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his day to jump on and chat about his career and what he's got going on with the farm coming up and the ethos of kind of barley swine and odd duck and how all those are integrated together, but came about in their own individual way too as well. So kind of a pretty interesting story, I thought, and I'm glad we were finally able to get him on. He's somebody that I've been kind of chasing for a handful of months and was super excited when he agreed to come on. And then um, once it happened and everything too, it was still super exciting just because we had such a great time at Barley Swine. I mean, I couldn't recommend that restaurant enough if you're in Austin. I know Austin has a prevalent food scene. Um, there's a lot of great restaurants in that city. I mean, we've you know had a couple people on from Texas and everything. I know Austin gets kind of all the press and everything these days. Um, there's a lot of great restaurants in Texas, but I mean, you're going to be hard pressed to find a better experience when, you know, you land in Austin and you're like, where should I go? Like barley swine's got to be among your top choices. It's that good. And it's, it's that cool of a restaurant. Um, it's a little weird. It's one of those things where, and I had this happen a couple of times in Texas where you arrive at the restaurant and it's kind of in like this strip molly setting, which is a little confusing because that's not normally the case for like the East Coast or, you know, even the Midwest where usually if you find a restaurant in a strip mall, it's kind of like almost lesser than in your mentality of the way you approach it. But it's very common um, with how kind of Texas is laid out in the cities and stuff to find great restaurants in that kind of like strip mall-y setting. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not just like thrown together or anything. It's a very decadent, like purposely thought through restaurant, the way they have it set up and everything too in their state of the art. But it's just something that throws you for a loop when you kind of you first arrive if you're not used to seeing you know that and i think la is kind of the same way too as well but um yeah i couldn't recommend it enough so check them out again follow them on instagram at bryce underscore gilmore you can also follow the restaurants at odd duck austin at barley swine at sour duck market and you can follow the farm that he's starting at river.field.farm Make sure to follow us as well at SpoonMob. Check out our website, SpoonMob.com. And also make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform that you listen to the podcast on. And that is it for this week. More episodes coming. So appreciate everybody who's been listening. If you're new, welcome. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode and continue to check out previous episodes through the back catalog. And also, again, make sure to follow, subscribe so you get all the new episodes directly into your feed once you do. And uh, if you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support and continue to help, you know, spread the word. If you wind up at one of these restaurants or businesses that we've featured, make sure to let them know that you heard about them on the Spoon Mob podcast and heard their interview. Uh, we always want uh, to pass along that kind of good fortune and review and, and word of mouth to them too as well. So they know it was worth their time to come on the podcast and, you know, that they have a support system with us here too as well. We try and support everybody as much as we can in a variety of different ways, whether it's Resharing their Instagram stuff, you know, new menus, new dishes, uh, upcoming events, stuff like that. Having people return to the podcast when they have something new to chat about too as well and update us on and update the listeners. Patroning uh, their restaurants as much as we can, whenever we can too as well, just because, you know, they're great places to eat, great places to experience. And, you know, if the word doesn't get spread, then eventually, you know, those places could go away. And 
Uh, we don't want to see that happen. We want everybody who comes on the podcast to have a thriving business and be in the industry for as long as they want to be. That is it for this week, and we will talk to you guys next week.